thankful that you are here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bible, you can be turning the pages. If you've got a device, certainly you can be scrolling on there to the Bible and to Romans chapter 8. You know, we've been covering several topics recently, and those are great sermons, some series, things like that. That's wonderful. But certainly this morning, we want to get back into the text and think about a textual sermon in particular. We're thankful that you're here. We have some visitors in our midst, uh, maybe a few true visitors, and certainly some of you who are not exactly visitors, but we're thankful that you have come to be with us this morning. We continue to be thankful to all those who tune in online, an opportunity that we have to share in that way. Uh, just a couple of things that I would remind you of by those means. Through the pandemic, we've learned that there are lots of opportunities now for us to view lessons and hear things online, and so we're thankful for that. I, we would remind you once again of Polishing the Pulpit that is going on online. They continue to add uh, new videos each day and will, I believe, through this coming Thursday. If you're still having trouble logging into that, let us know. I was actually with one of our members this week for just a moment and whipped out the computer and started the process and got them halfway there to allow them to finish it so we can help you get through that because there are many, many wonderful sermons, not only for our adults in general, but certainly sermons uh, for the ladies by some of our great women who can teach. There's some for our kids, and so it's really, really encouraging, and we hope that you will take advantage of that. We appreciate so much, again, our elders uh, helping us with that and making it where we can have a congregation-wide subscription. Uh, there are a couple of flyers out on the table. I'll just remind you once again as well that tomorrow night, God be willing, will begin the fall term of the Chattanooga School of Preaching and Biblical Studies at the Greens Lake Road congregation. And I would just encourage you as well, those will be available online. But if you're interested in taking the classes for credit, or if you just want to be known that you're watching the classes and you want the information from the teachers, the handouts and things, and you need to contact our brother Roger Campbell from the Greens Lake Road congregation, the information is there on the flyers, but you can uh, listen to any of the classes on the Proverbs for this term, the prison epistles, or even uh, on the book of Hebrews, I believe. And we hope that you can take advantage of all of these things uh, during this time. January 12th, 1969 was Super Bowl number three. January 12th, 1969. In fact, history shows that that was the first one that was actually called the Super Bowl and beginning this series of football games. The New York Jets, who were 18-point underdogs, almost three touchdowns, uh, underdogs to the Baltimore Colts were going to be playing uh, there on January 12th. But the game is very memorable, but especially for three days before that game when Joe Namath, who was the quarterback for the Jets was at an event, and he was unfortunately a little intoxicated, as history shows, but a, a fan from the opposing team pushed him and was heckling him, if you will, about the game. And so Joe Namath said, made the, the very famous statement, we're going to win the game, I guarantee it. Some of you may remember that, or maybe you've uh, heard about that, certainly, but he made a guarantee that they were going to win the game. Most of us in life most of us in this life would like a guarantee, wouldn't we? About three months ago when we were recording our lessons and putting them up on Sunday morning, I recorded a lesson that was entitled Death and Taxes. For most of us, that's what we consider to be the most guaranteed thing in this life, uh, death and taxes. And sometimes we throw other things in there, but we appreciate this idea of having a guarantee. Now, if you know the history of that game, Joe Namath was correct. His team was going to go on and win this game in one of the greatest upsets in the history of football. But if we're honest, he didn't really know. I mean, right? He was confident, as many athletes are, 
But he did not know for sure. He could not actually guarantee that they were going to win that game, that they were going to have a victory, and that he could guarantee that. The book of Romans is often called Paul's greatest work. Uh, it's one of the great epistles. It's there towards the front of many of the other epistles that Paul adds in. And this book is filled with so many great passages and encouraging words. But this morning, we want to take a look at just one particular passage, and that's Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Now, if you've got your bulletin in front of you, there's a bit of a typo there. We're not going to work backwards uh, from verses 31 to 29. You know, I think Faith throws those in there for me every once in a while to see if I'm paying attention when I'm supposed to be proofreading the bulletin, and obviously I wasn't on Friday. So uh, it's 31 through 39. If you're taking notes, you may want to make that update there so that you can follow along with this as we look at this particular passage. Now, if you open your Bible or you're looking there, if you can see that entire section, you may find seven question marks. There are seven question marks in this particular passage. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin by taking a look at one. And then certainly if you have your outline in front of you, we're going to examine four of them. And really two of them are just sort of rhetorical questions. They could be statements. And we're going to cover them, but in a little bit different way. So Paul begins there in verse number 31 by saying, What then shall we say to these things? Now as we examine Scripture, it's important to think about the context. If Paul says, What shall we say to these things? What is he talking about when he means these particular things? Well, what he's saying is these things that have been mentioned already. If you've got your Bible open, he's not just talking about chapter 8 as the chapters are divided for us, but really the whole book so far almost. almost. There's a lot of key highlights there. If you look at chapter 5 and verse number 8, we are thankful about these things. And one of these things is the fact that God has demonstrated his own love toward us and that he sent his son. We're going to come back and talk about that in just a moment. But we're, we're thankful for these things. We're thankful for chapter 6 and verse number 23 that we can know the wages of sin is death, but we are thankful to know these things. These things that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We go over to chapter 8 and there are several that are listed there. Verse number 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. What shall we say to these things? These things being there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We look at verse number 17, that we can be called children of God and heirs and joint heirs with Christ. What shall we say to these things? Even verse number 26 we might throw in there, that the Holy Spirit is helping us in all of our weaknesses. And so when you come to verse number 31, don't forget that there are, are breaks in our Bible, there are verses and chapters, but Paul's writing a letter. And he comes, we come, if we're just reading it as a letter, to verse number 31, and Paul is going to say, what shall we say to these things? These things are some of the things that we've listed here, but I might submit to you, if you've got your bulletin in front of you, that we might fill in the blank by saying, what shall we say to these things? Well, we might say nothing. And we might... Think about it in the way of, of stunned, being stunned or speechless. Paul kind of says it in a different way in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 15. Thanks be to God, depending on the version that you have, for his unspeakable gift or his indescribable or inexpressible gift. So when we say, what shall we say to these things? Sometimes that's nothing. 
We're just simply stunned and speechless when we think about what Paul is saying. In light of what all God has done for me, what can I say? When we really count our blessings and we think about the opportunity to be here, even amongst a pandemic and wearing masks and the things that, that separate us from our usual way, even amongst all of that, the way that God has blessed me, what can I say about all these things? I can't say anything in some ways when we think about that. I thought about a sports, another sports analogy, as much as I love sports, but you think about a coach who's facing one of the greatest uh, legends of all time. You think about uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan basketball or whatever the best baseball player or football player might have been, and you think about the coach who says, I have developed the perfect scheme to stop this particular player or this particular play. They go on, they put up 50 points in the game, and you get beat, and the coach says, he shrugs his shoulders, he says, I'm speechless. I don't know what else to say. I tried my best, and here is the way that I've ended up. Paul says, what shall we say to these things? I think the answer might be nothing. What are we going to say for what all God has done for us? But at the same time, we might go forward and say, what shall we say to these things? Well, we say everything when we think about what God has done. And yet, I should never stop thanking God for all of these things that He has done for me. We think about the words of Jeremiah in Lamentations. His mercies are new every morning. How great and how wonderful it is to consider all that God has done for us. It is truly a great blessing to think about that. And so what shall we say to these things? Well, we should say everything. Have you ever heard the preacher talk about prayer and he says that when we begin prayer, we should give thanks to God first. Now, I think that's a good way of thinking about prayer. But when we start doing that, sometimes we'll spend most of our prayer thanking God and counting our blessings how can we not give Him everything when we look at these things? When you read the book of Romans and think about what all God has done for us, we can say nothing, but we might say everything as well. The conclusion is that God is working for Christians. God is working for Christians. He is on their side. You may be more familiar with verse number 28, if you're still there in Romans chapter 8. All things are working together for good. That is the way that God is working for us. The evidence is there. And so if we begin, if God is for us, let's go on to the next question there and begin to examine. The next question is going to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, it's not stated explicitly in the text, but the answer, if it's read into the text, is still very obvious, and the answer is no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer is no one. No one can be against us. Now, how do we know that? How can we sit here this morning and say that we know that no one can be against us? The answer, because God is for us. But how do we know that God is for us? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. If you're still there, look at the end of verse number 32 or verse number 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Our first question here, or this next question in verse number 32, it isn't that much of a question, but it could be read as a statement. God gave his son. He delivered up his son, his own son, delivered him up for us all. And so it naturally flows that he, with him, would give us, freely give us all things. Here's the thing, and don't miss this point. Here's the thing. He's given us the most difficult gift already. 
When we say, if God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know that? Well, it's because God has already given the most important thing, the most difficult gift. And there, in fact, if you're still there in Romans, go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5 and verse number 6 talks about it again there. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The most important gift, the most difficult thing that God can do has already been done. So of course we know that if God is for us, then no one can be against us. Just follow it logically. Who can defeat us? Well, if God has demonstrated His own love in sending His Son, He will freely give us all things that we need to complete our heavenly journey, to continue on here in this life. Who can be against us? The answer is no one. Number two, the second question there, or again, as we're looking here at our particular passage, who shall charge us? Who, who shall charge us in verse number 33? Well, first of all, think about it, and your Bible may say something a little different there. Who is the us? Who shall charge us is the way we asked, asked it in our outline. But we notice from the passage here in verse 33, us is God's elect. The Greek word there is ekletos, the elect, the chosen, the picked out. You remember the way that Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9 that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. And don't miss in that particular passage there in 1 Peter 2, he says, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God. The elect, the ekletos, the chosen, the picked out. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? against us, a chosen generation? I think you know the answer. No one. The answer is no one. No one shall bring a charge against us. In fact, we would notice as well that we are secure from every charge. As you think about what Paul is trying to say here, he's asking the questions, but then he's giving us the answers. We are secure from every charge. How do we know that? Well, verse, the verse says there, because God justifies us. Now, I don't know if you've heard the preacher or a preacher say before, sometimes when preachers use the word justified or talk about being justified, they say that you can understand it to say that it's just if I'd never sinned. So you take the word there and make the play on it. But to be justified means that God makes us justified, never sinned. When we think about what that truly means, we're talking about the fact that God justifies us. He makes us not guilty. And listen, if the most high and holy one makes it where there can be no charge against us, then there is not anybody in this world or anything that can bring a charge against us. We are secure from every charge if God justifies us. And he does. He justifies us, makes it justified, never sin. And we should be thankful for that. But let's continue here. Number three, who can condemn us? Once again, does anybody need to guess, guess the answer to that one? No one. No one can condemn us. We are secure from all condemnation. He's already said it. We noted it in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But we are secure from all condemnation. Is there evidence? Does Paul give us an answer again? How can we know this? We'll keep reading in that same verse, verse number 34, because he does. He says, Christ died for us. He rose and he makes intercession. 
So yes, we are secure from all condemnation. The Hebrew writer discusses this as well in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse number 25, the fact that Jesus, He always lives to make intercession for us. That is what He is doing. So we can know that we are secure from all condemnation. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 24. Hebrews 9, 24, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Something that we cannot do with our sinful nature. He has done. He died, He rose, and He's making intercession for us so we can know that we are secure from all condemnation. So just as it is with God, the Most High and Holy justifying us, Jesus is our advocate, promoting us. So who can condemn us? No one. So if we know that there is no one that can charge us and there is no condemnation, no one can condemn us, so what now? Paul continues to ask these questions. Who then shall separate us? Well, you probably already filled in the blanks, right? You know the answer. I was thinking, I wish Bill was here this morning. He would always joke. You know, I try to guess what the blanks are going to be. I think he would get this one this morning, but he would know. No one. You know the answer already. Who can separate us? No one. We might also say nothing, because you would notice if you're still there in your Bible, the seven things that are listed there. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, or what can separate us from the love of Christ? Again, we know nothing because of the seven things that are listed there. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. It's hyperbolic language, if you will. It's hyperbably, obviously. You get the point. It's as if Paul was standing right here speaking to us, that we would shrug our shoulders and say, okay, Paul, I get it, I get it. You don't have to list anything else. I'm understanding the point. Nothing. Uh, We could have listed anything. Paul could have taken ten more pages in our Bible to go through any number of things, and we would understand by hyperbole that there's nothing. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. We could list anything that we could think of, and it can't. And so for the Jewish readers, Paul goes ahead and gives an Old Testament reference. If you're still there, it's Romans chapter 8, but we notice that it's verse four, uh, excuse me, Psalms chapter 44 and verse 22. The quotation from the 44th Psalm in verse 22, that righteous people suffer and long for vindication. They would know this particular passage. They would think about that. They would look back at the Old Testament. Of course, it's not recorded for them in that way, but they would look back on their previous generations and know that, yes, God's people suffer. They could look around them at the apostles and say, yes, we know that God's people will suffer and they long for vindication. And the point is, is that we are not any different from those in the Old Testament. We are not any different from the apostles. God's people are going to suffer. The suffering of the righteous is nothing new. In fact, we talked about that almost three or four weeks ago now. Followers of God have always suffered and will always suffer. So who then? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is no, nay. Nothing, depending on the version that you're looking at, no, in all these things, in everything, anything that we could think of and list this morning, we could go around the room ten different times in anything that we list, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because we are more than. The original Greek word there kind of literally means above. We are more than, we are above conquerors. 
Those who, those who would be considered victorious, we as Christians are above that through Him who loved us. And then there are ten things that are listed. There are ten things that come after that in this particular passage, beginning in about verse number 38 there. But before we list those things, I think it's important for us to consider, notice what Paul says. And put yourself in the position of a reader. This epistle has come to you or to your congregation, and it's being read. Paul says, I am persuaded. But think about what that means for the Apostle Paul. The man who was in prison, who was beaten with rods, who was stoned and left for dead, who was shipwrecked in hunger and in thirst, in cold and in, and in nakedness. Paul, who's gone through all of that, can say, I am persuaded. And so it causes us to give pause for just a moment and to stop and think. If Paul, who has suffered that greatly, can say, I am persuaded then we in our cushy or easy lives can certainly look around us and hopefully say the same thing. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, for the sake of being clear, for the simple sake of clarity, and to be sure there is no confusion as we're having this discussion this morning, let me say here that none of this great passage, of course, means that we cannot be lost once we become a Christian. Some people would point at this passage. In fact, if you would have a study with someone, try to even debate maybe in a way with someone and talk about whether or not a person is once saved, always saved, some people will point to this particular passage. This is not saying that once a person becomes a Christian, that we cannot be lost. Several passages that we don't have time to go through this morning, including, if you're taking notes, you might write down Galatians chapter 4. Several passages, including Galatians chapter 4, do teach that we, and don't miss it, we can separate ourselves from the love of God and the love of Christ through disobedience and unfaithfulness. We can do that with our disobedience and unfaithfulness. Nothing else can do that to us. No one can hold a gun to our head. No one can take our life. No one can do anything in that sense of an external force to separate us from the love of Christ. But we can certainly do it ourselves. There's absolutely no external force that can separate faithful Christians from the love of God in Christ. It doesn't matter what folks do. It doesn't matter what folks say. It doesn't matter what happens. It doesn't matter what anyone in this old world can say or do to us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. I heard it said this way a couple of months ago, back towards the beginning of the pandemic, by one of our mutual friends from Fried Hardeman, a fellow minister, and I adapted it just a little. But listen and think about it this way. Maybe we could sum it up best by saying this. And can you say this? For I am persuaded that neither COVID-19 nor flu nor the stock market, stock market gains, nor recession, nor current president, nor future president, nor any foreign power, nor tornadoes, nor hurricanes, nor wildfires, nor anything else that can and probably will happen shall separate me from the love of God. Can you say that this morning? Do you really mean it if you say it? Because those things get in the way sometimes. Even double hurricanes that may be headed towards our great country. And we began to sort of doubt and question things. 
But the answer is the same. That's why this passage is so great. No, nothing. Nay, nothing. Because we are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But also understand this. None of this that we have said this morning means that we will have or have no adversaries or afflictions. That we will have no dilemmas or difficulties. That we will have no trials or tribulations. None of this great passage implies that we will have none of those things in this life. But it does mean that we cannot lose with God. It does mean that we have victory. Paul would say it as well very succinctly and perfectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number 57. But thanks, thankfulness, but thanks be to God who has given us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. Victory is ours. It's not a question. I struggled a little bit with the topic, or, or not the topic, but the theme, the title for the sermon this week, but you keep coming back to the idea that it's very simple to understand from this passage that victory is ours. We cannot lose with God. And I thought about it this way. Joe Namath made a statement, but God makes a guarantee. When we think about true guarantees in this life, there is not much, even if we feel very strongly that we can say 100% without a shadow of a doubt that this will or will not happen. Once again, just think about 2020. We've had a lot of new things this year that we would have never pictured or imagined. But one thing that we can know for sure, as surely as I'm standing here and you sit here this morning, God has made a guarantee that we have the victory. We cannot lose with God on our side. And as we begin to conclude this section of Scripture, don't miss the last part. All of these things are great, but verse number 39 really tries to bring it home for us. All of these things are great. Victory is great, but not if you don't know where to find those things, right? If I could tell you where, that you can have a million dollars, but I don't tell you where it is, it doesn't do you any good. God says you can have all of these things, but that's great, God. Where is it found? Where is the love of God that we cannot be separated from found? They're found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's very short, it's very simple, it's very easy to understand, although we complicate things here in this life, and you will talk to others who make it difficult. But the love of God is found in Christ. I don't know if there's a better way to say it than Don already let us in. Oh, victory in Jesus. How wonderful and comforting and great it is to think about that fact, especially among all the things that are going on around us. Sounds like a great place, right, being in Christ. We unfortunately don't have time this morning to begin to list the blessings that are found in Christ. It would take us almost a whole quarter of study if we were to try to do it in a Bible class. But Paul has already told you how to get there. If you're still in Romans chapter 8, maybe you can turn back just a page or two in your Bible to Romans chapter 6 in verse number 3. Because Paul says we need to be in Christ, but he also tells us how to get there. Romans chapter 6 in verse number 3, or do you not know? By the way, it's another rhetorical question. Paul's asking something that we should understand. Do you not know that all of those... As many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Would you be baptized this morning into Christ where all spiritual blessings are found? Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3 where victory is found. The good news is the victory has been won. 
When Paul writes it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he means it. Thanks be to God who has given us the victory. There's no question mark there. He's not unsure about that. The victory has been won. Don't miss it. It's guaranteed, as we've already talked about. But you have to be in Christ. And the opportunity is here this morning to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins so that the Lord would add you to His church. And you have the opportunity, even as we are about to sing this song that has been selected, that through its words, we might encourage you. Do you need to put Christ on in baptism to encounter all spiritual blessings, to encounter the love of God? Do you need to return to the fold of safety, even now as we stand together and as we sing?